John 4, verses 5 through 29. So Jesus came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for, for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealing with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you, are the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? This is the word of the Lord. The Rolling Stones captured one of the most common sentiments of humankind when they sang the words, I can't get no satisfaction, though I try and I try and I try and I try. Satisfaction is something that we all want, yet it's very elusive. It can be something that for our, our entire lives, we commit ourselves to pursuing satisfaction, contentment, 
ease, some kind of inner soul rest and acceptance. And yet in a moment, it can just all slip through our fingers and we're just dissatisfied again. You think, why do we change jobs so often or even change an entire career path? Why do we often pick up and move all the way across the country and settle down somewhere else? Why do we change all kinds of things? Why do we break up and start dating again? Why do we get married and get divorced and get married and get divorced? Why do we change our clothes, our style, our hair, our friends, our church? Why do we even change something as significant as gender identity? And it all comes down to this one word, dissatisfaction. We are changing things constantly because we have a deep longing in our heart, in our soul, in our mind for something different, something that we know intuitively is better than what we're currently experiencing. And so we continually go after it. And satisfaction is such an odd thing because you know you could have 99 areas of your life where you are completely satisfied and you could have one area of your life where you're lacking satisfaction and what becomes the focus of your attention? The one thing, right? And it becomes this compulsive thing of like, we don't even think about all the areas, all the relationships where we are satisfied. We obsess as a tendency over the one thing where we're not satisfied. So it's probably no surprise, given that this is endemic to humankind, that Jesus encountered all kinds of dissatisfied people. And we're going to focus on just one of them this morning, the woman at the well, as she's often called in John chapter 4. And John, as he writes about this story, is going to show us four things about dissatisfaction. He's going to show us the sources of dissatisfaction, the soothing of dissatisfaction, the savior from dissatisfaction, and then the satisfaction of dissatisfaction. Okay, so let's start in this context just so we understand who, who are we talking about here? Well, the text says it's a woman of Samaria. The, the Samaritans were an ethnic group that essentially originated during the time of the Assyrian conquest of Israel, 722, 721 B.C., So the Assyrian army is invading Israel. They're deporting masses of Jews back to Assyria and placing them in significant bondage. And there are kind of two theories about where these Samaritans came from. One is that Assyria actually took Gentiles from other places and repopulated this region of Samaria so that it wouldn't just be like fallow ground laying there just overrun by jackals and nothing but that there would be someone there like farming and doing something, building towns. And the other theory is that some Israelites, some Jews actually figured out a way to stay behind, whether they were hiding out and then kind of came out of hiding when the armies depart. And either way, the idea is that you have an ethnically mixed group of people who are neither Jews nor Arabs. They're not Gentiles. They're, They're this mix of different peoples. And so by the time of Jesus, you know, 700 years later, the Jews look down on the Samaritans because they're thinking, you know, you're a mixed race of people. You're, you're ethnic, um, not purebreds like us, which was very, very important to many of the Jews. And the Samaritans at the same time, just to kind of preserve their own identity, look down upon the Jews 
And as is referenced in this text, they actually set up their separate place of worship. They're like, we're not going down to Jerusalem to your temple. We're just going to do our own thing on Mount Gerizim. And so they did. And I give you this context because this is the meaning behind the parathetical remark in verse 9, which says the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And basically it's an ethnic clash. It's, it's a racially motivated clash. Furthermore, you're talking about a very patriarchal society in which, and this is incredible to us today, but in which a man, if he was a man of good standing, would not even speak publicly to a random woman. Okay? That's what they did. So that's why in verse 27, it says the disciples are astonished and they literally, it says, they marveled that he was talking to a woman. That's what's behind that. Okay, we don't marvel at that. We're like, yeah, men talk to women. But in this society, they did not. Okay, so what's interesting, just as a context before we get into the story, is you've got, you've got an ethnic barrier. You've got a gender barrier. You've got all these layers of social and cultural barriers that were between this woman and Jesus. Jesus never should have been having this conversation according to the norms of culture. But, you know, he's Jesus. And she had a need, and so he went to her. And we understand something specific about that need because Jesus, the great physician, kind of gives her a prescription for dissatisfaction. Okay, that's how I'm kind of knowing that Jesus is encountering dissatisfaction here. So, you know, if you go to the doctor and you say, Doctor, I'm having chest pains, that doctor is going to run probably a battery of tests to understand what is your underlying cause of that chest pain because it's going to differentiate my treatment of your pain. You know, if you have acid reflux, I may give you a prescription for Prilosec. If you've got bruised cartilage and, you know, it's, and it's causing like a stabbing heart pain because you've got bruised cartilage, he's just going to put you on an anti-inflammatory and say, you need to rest. You need to like, let those muscles just have some time off. But if you've got something really serious like clogged arteries, he's going to be like, well, you need angioplasty or some kind of surgery. And we can kind of reverse engineer what, what was your presenting issue by finding out what does the doctor say you do about it. So this is why Jesus is striking up a conversation and he's telling her ultimately, let me, let me share with you something that is going to deeply, richly, eternally satisfy you. It's because Jesus understands this is a dissatisfied person. So let's go to this first point, the sources of dissatisfaction. And I actually want to start with you, then go to the text and look at this Samaritan woman and then kind of come back to you. So a couple questions for you to kind of diagnose where you're sitting at literally right there this morning. One is, where have you experienced the greatest dissatisfaction in life? So kind of looking back over many years, most of you, many relationships, many types of circumstances, where would you say this is the thing or this is the relationship that left me most deeply, grievously dissatisfied? And then another question is, where are you most deeply dissatisfied right now? In this moment, what is leading you to feel discontentment, unhappiness, or maybe even like an emptiness? of like, there's got to be something more than what I'm doing and experiencing right now. And for many of you, it's a relationship. You would look back or you would look right now and say, my relationship with this person or my relationship with this whole group of people has left me deeply discontent. You know, they're taking advantage of me. They're wounding me. 
Or maybe you feel like I'm missing someone that would fill a role in my life, like a spouse or a closest friend or a boss who actually seems to care about me. Some of you, it's a a vocation or even your day-to-day work. You would say, I have a deep longing for meaningful work, and my job is either way too challenging and it's over my head and it's frustrating in that way and dissatisfying in that way, or it's just like it's not challenging me at all. Like I just go through the motions and I can earn a paycheck, but it's, it's so monotonous and boring. It just seems pointless and unfulfilling. There's got to be more to a career that's meaningful than this. Or maybe it's a, a financial situation that some of you are sitting there today and you're like, man, I, I just thought I would be somewhere different financially by this stage of my life. Like a little bit more prosperous. I would have some things that I want that I don't have that other people around me seem to have. Or, or I thought I would have more stability and security in my financial situation by now. And you don't. And that's a source of dissatisfaction. Maybe you can't even put your finger on it. Maybe you're just like, I don't know, I feel this nagging discontentment, dissatisfaction. And it's not like one thing that I'm like, boom, that's it. If I could solve that, everything would be fine. You're just like, I, I just know there's, there's more to life. There's more to this than this. Okay. And I want to ask you, why do those things dissatisfy you and me? And what I really mean is we can look around and we can see other people who have worse relationships, they have a worse job, they have a worse financial situation or a worse health situation, and yet they're deeply content, right? There are people that have less and they are happier, more content, more satisfied, more fulfilled than some of us. And so the question is really why and what is the source underlying of that dissatisfaction that we're experiencing? And the story hints at three related things. Let me share them briefly. Number one, the source may be unmet expectations. So coming back to this woman in our text, there's no way as a little girl in that society or any society, she's sitting there thinking, I hope to be married to five different husbands someday. I hope to be the social pariah of my town someday because I've experienced so much rejection, so much loss that I now bear a stigma for my life so that I literally have to go to the well in the middle of the day by myself when none of the other women from town are ever going to be there because I'm carrying some baggage, okay? And I'm just wondering how often you and I, we are dissatisfied simply because what we expected from a relationship, from from an educational trajectory. You know, I'm going to go to this school and I'm going to pursue this degree and this is how it's going to go and I'll get this job and this is how it's going to turn out. And you're like, man, just in so many ways, reality does not measure up to expectations. And you all can look at your lives and you can understand many, many, many different ways that you have experienced that gap between reality and expectations. Is that something that's stirring up dissatisfaction? A second thing that's related to that is that maybe it's because you've been wounded or rejected by others. And it's really hard, going back to the Samaritan woman, it's hard to overstate the wounds that she would have borne emotionally, socially. I mean, the text doesn't say who's at fault in all these series of divorces, and I don't really want to speculate. But can you imagine the pain, the rejection, 
the shame that she would have felt in a patriarchal culture. And again, today, where it's just like, eh, you do you, expressive, expressive individualism, just, you know, people fall in love, people fall out of love. You know, divorce and remarriage is not such a big deal in our culture, in Western culture, in postmodern and post-Christian culture, but in a very religious and very patriarchal and very traditional society, those wounds and rejection by other people would have sunk deep into her soul. And maybe some of you are experiencing the same this morning that you would say, my dissatisfaction, I know, is directly tied to how other people have treated me. And their, their gossip, their slander, their anger, their manipulation, their bullying, their, their lack of affirmation, their lack of saying, good job, or I really care about you. Or maybe it's not even a specific person who's doing some of these things to you. But again, it's a longing for a certain kind of relationship. And the pain and the brokenness and the wounding that you feel is like, God, where is that person? I just feel so broken and hurt and wounded because of relationships or the lack thereof. And this really leads us to the underlying thing in the Samaritan woman's life and therefore ours. And that is the source of a crushed identity. See, in, in her culture, the woman's whole identity, her sense of significance, her sense of value or self-worth would have been bound up inextricably with how good of a job are you doing at being a wife and a mother? And I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying that's what the culture was like. Her entire sense of like, you are a good person doing good things would have been deeply connected to her performance as a wife and a mother. And, and what kind of circles do you run in in Sychar? And you can see that people would look at her and be like, well, how faithful was she? How loved was she? How successful was she at the one thing that really matters? And everybody would step back and say, she's got three strikes against her right out of the gate. And so in that culture, she was a nobody. Her peers would have ostracized her. They would have looked down on her. They would have whispered about her behind her back. And my point is that everything that she would have been basing or building her identity on, her sense of self-worth, would have just been devastated. And she could have said, like, Jesus, I, I'm, I'm devastated. I'm, I'm broken. I'm dissatisfied because look at my life. Look at my track record. Not only do I feel like a failure, but everybody else in this town treats me like a failure. So when she rolls into that well that day, my point is she had many legitimate reasons to feel dissatisfied, both her own personal successes and failures, but also what her culture was doing to her. And I want to pause and just say, before we go to this next point, what are you building your identity on that is leaving you dissatisfied? And we've talked about this often, but a traditional culture would kind of build your identity, your sense of self-worth on these traditional things. Like, do you do your duty as a, a breadwinner? you know, or as a, as a good cook or all these things. And again, I'm not saying that's right. We can step back as believers and say, that's silly that you would build your identity on that and say, that's what makes you a, a significant or a valuable person. But that was traditional culture. And some of you kind of follow a traditional culture and you're looking at your performance and you're saying, how good of a job do I do at performing in all these ways that I've set up in my mind or that culture around me has set up for me that I need to be successful. And because you're struggling, you're dissatisfied. Or maybe you do kind of 
uh, side more or gravitate toward more of a progressive identity where it's about more of your autonomy, more of your individual expression, more of you kind of just finding your own path. And your sense of significance would be based on like, how much do people validate this path that I've chosen for me? Like, does another group of people say like, way to go, you're so successful at carving out your own identity? Or are people like, eh, you're not doing a great job of even being you, you know? And that leaves you deeply dissatisfied. But I think a crushed identity is, is or, or a failing identity is really what's underneath this woman's dissatisfaction. Now, point two, I said, is the soothing of dissatisfaction. And where I want to go here, anybody ever get like a really severe sunburn? Like where you can, you can press on your skin and pull your finger off and there's this much lighter spot of skin and it's like just very dark and burnt and you're, you're walking around and you don't want to touch anything. You don't want anyone to touch you. It just hurts. And then it sets into this like because, me because my skin is so um, snow white. Like if I get a bad sunburn, my skin turns purple and I have like skin poisoning. And then there's this itching thing and it's just awful. And you know for a handful of days that I can't fix this. I can't make it go away. Like my skin is going to have to repair itself. But in the meantime, don't you want some kind of salve or something to like soothe, soothe that horrific pain or that terrible itching sensation? And my point with this second point about soothing our dissatisfaction is just to show us in this text and in our own lives how we try to pacify our dissatisfaction without actually resolving the underlying source of our dissatisfaction. And the first thing we do to soothe our dissatisfaction is we keep trying. Okay, this woman's first marriage failed, so what did she do? She tried again, and she tried again, and she tried again, and she tried again. And now she's in at least a sixth relationship trying again. She wasn't solving her dissatisfaction, but she was trying to soothe it by maybe the next one, maybe the next one, maybe the next one, maybe the next one. And I think there are two ways we try again all the time. One is simply like, I failed at X, so I'm going to do X again. I'm going to do the same thing. And this time, you know, if you're smart, you're like, I'm going to take some lessons I learned from the last time I failed at this. I'm going to do the same thing again, but I'm going to do it so much better. It's going to work this time and I'm going to be satisfied. And some of you see yourself doing that. Like I'm going to do it again. And I'm going to do it again and again and again and again until I get this thing right. And others of us try again by trying something completely different. We're like, I ain't, I ain't doing that again. I'm, I'm just, I'm never going to be able to do that thing. So I'm going to do something different. Okay. My life isn't working out on the East Coast, so I'm going to move to Colorado where everything is going to be amazing because I can hike and ski and, uh, you know, just visit amazing places all the time and be, be surrounded by people just like me, maybe get a better job. And we, we try something completely different. But the point is, um, I actually think the Rolling Stones are onto something when they say we go after our own dissatisfaction by trying and trying and trying and trying again. And probably some of you see that in your life, how I'm either trying the same thing with lessons learned or I'm just going to change, but I'm going to keep trying, keep up my effort at something. Um, here's the second way that we try to soothe our dissatisfaction is we, uh, we spin the truth. And that's what this woman is doing where Jesus says, uh, go call your husband. 
And instead of facing the facts where she could have said, well, Jesus, I'm actually, I'm actually a repeat failure at marriage. So there's that. Yeah, look at, she says, I don't have a husband. And it's technically correct, but it's entirely deceitful. I just wonder how many times we do that to ourselves, where we tell ourselves maybe first these little lies to soothe our dissatisfaction. It's like, yeah, I'm single right now because I'm just kind of focused on me. And you're like, actually inside, you're like devastated. You're like, he just broke up with you. And you're like, this is terrible. And you're like, yeah, I just wanted to take a season to just pump the brakes and just kind of like think about what I need and what I want. Or, you know, I mean, this, this goes all kinds of ways. It could be like, I, I'm not upset my position was eliminated because I was already looking for something new anyway. Or I, I'm not disappointed about this very serious health thing because I'm just, I'm just trusting God is in control. And by the way, some of you are trusting God that's in, that, that he's in control. I'm not saying that you're not. But I think oftentimes we can just throw up these little phrases where it's like sort of kind of true, but not really telling the story of how you feel in your marriage right now, how you feel in your career right now, how you feel in so many areas. We, we spin to make it sound a little bit better. Like I'm, I'm doing okay. Um, then the third thing we see the woman do and that we often do is just call on a higher power. And I put it that way because notice when Jesus tries to get personal with her, she deflects in a very odd way, and she deflects a personal conversation about her own life to a controversy about worship. And in verse 20, she says, Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, which would have been Mount Gerizim in Samaria, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And you can see clearly how she's deflecting. She's like, I'm done talking about my relationships. Let's talk about worship. I'm a worshiper. So why is life going so badly? And, and Jesus in grace is pointing out you don't even know what you're worshiping. You don't even, you're, you're going through the motions. I don't have any doubt. Like you're trying probably to offer some kind of sacrifice and you're trying to pray to some kind of God, some kind of higher power, but you don't really understand who is this that I have a relationship with. And, and what Jesus is pointing out is religion or just having some kind of prayer relationship with a, an ambiguous higher power, that is no more satisfying, friends, than money or sex or marriage or a good job. Just religion is no more satisfying than any of those other things that we could seek satisfaction in. And maybe, frankly, somebody's here this morning because you're like, it's a church. I don't know. I got to kind of throw up a Hail Mary and... I'm at wit's end with how dissatisfied I am, how discontent, how hard this thing in my life is. And I just, I just want to pray. I just want to show up for a worship service. I just want to ask some higher power, like, God, whoever you are, please do something different in my life to make me content. And what Jesus wants us to understand is we don't need to be soothed. We don't need to be salved. We need to be saved. And this is now point three, good news. There's a savior from dissatisfaction. And the first thing I want you to see about this savior is that his, the, the deliverance from dissatisfaction is personal. See, when Jesus speaks to this woman and go back and read it this week and notice he's not giving her tips and tricks about how you uh, leave dissatisfaction behind. He's not giving her rules and religion. He's not giving her some kind of formula. He's giving her the gift of himself. 
she's waiting on a Messiah. And at least she knows that much. Theologically, you know, the Samaritans were not worshiping in the same sense that the Jews worshiped, but they believed the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. And they believed that in those books, they found everything that they needed basically for life and godliness. So she knew, at least from the Torah, about this concept of someone's coming to make this all right. But I love this in verse 26 because Jesus says at the end of this conversation, he says, I who speak to you am he, the one you're looking for. The only one who can satisfy you is a person. And by the end of the story, and we didn't read this far, but by the end of the story, she's gone off into town and she's like, you guys got to come meet this man who tells me everything I've ever done. We've never met. He knows I've got five husbands. He knows I'm with this other guy now. You got to come meet him. They all come and meet him. And it says they are now listening to Jesus, begging him to stay additional days, telling them more about this gospel plan. And verse 42 says, they're confessing we now know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. And I want to say to us, friends, to the degree that you are experiencing dissatisfaction in maybe many different areas of your life, day to day, or you even look back and say, I am defined by some traumatizing dissatisfaction, and that's many of you. I want to say what Jesus is saying, and that is, your solution is not found in gaining access to some esoteric formula that's like, boom, that's it. I never had that. A plus B equals C. Your satisfaction is ultimately found in an all-satisfying person. And the second good news here is not only is the deliverance from dissatisfaction personal, but this, the, the deliverance from dissatisfaction is pursuing. And here's what I mean. The woman was pursuing satisfaction in one relationship after another, after another, after another. She's pursuing satisfaction and Jesus is pursuing her. And there's this little detail at the beginning that says, Jesus, in this trip from Judea, where persecution is starting to ramp up, he's going to go back to Galilee, which is a region further up north. And, and what you may not know is literally like, if, if this line right here is like the Jordan River, and you would just normally just like the quickest way from Judea to Galilee or from Galilee to Judea is just like, just walk up the west side of the Jordan. They'd be like, no, nah, I'm good. And they would come way over here and they would walk all the way around so they didn't have to go through Samaria. Because they're like, we hate those people. We don't want to see people that ethnically we have animosity toward. We hate them. We don't even want to get their dust on us. So they go all the way around. And yet this text says Jesus had to go through Samaria. Why? Because he wanted to have a conversation with one woman. He literally goes out of his way to have a conversation with one woman. And what's stunning is he's basically telling people who are like, whoa, why, why is he talking to a woman? Whoa, why is he doing this? He's like, because I don't care about your social conventions. I don't care about your sinful discriminatory barriers of, of gender, of ethnicity, uh, of, of even religion, that she, she's basically worshiping a different God but doesn't know it. And Jesus tears down all those barriers and says, I want to have a conversation with you. I'm pursuing you. I'm not put off by your ethnicity. I'm not put off by your gender. I'm not put off by the fact that you are a notorious failure at relationships. And what we need to see is Jesus knew her intimately and loved her anyway. 
Because he can go to her and say, I know exactly your little deflection of like, well, I don't have a husband. And he can be like, woman, I know all about you. And I love you anyway. Because he's pursuing her. And that's the heart of our Savior. Because Jesus doesn't stop with her. He's pursuing you too. Whoever you are or watching online, Jesus is pursuing you. He's not put off by your mistakes. He's not put off by your shattered dreams. He's not put off by your shame, your sin, your failed identity. He's not put off by what others think about you or say is true about you. The one who wants to satisfy you deeply is in pursuit of your heart. And if we take what Jesus says here seriously, we see the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all want you to find deeply satisfying joy in true worship. See, because we can worship objects that, leave, that, that they kind of overpromise and underdeliver, and they leave us even more dissatisfied. Or we can worship the God of heaven, and we can be satisfied. And he says here in verse 23, he's like, the Father is literally seeking you out to let you become one of those true worshipers so that your life is filled with abundant joy. So let's go to that last point. So we see that the Savior is personal. We see that the Savior is pursuing you. Now, the satisfaction. How does this actually work? And I got three, kind of like three points for you of what Jesus is doing with this woman's heart, what he wants to do with your heart. Number one, the satisfaction of dissatisfaction begins when you acknowledge or you recognize where you're trying to find satisfaction. That's where it actually starts. See, Jesus is getting personal with this Samaritan woman. And by the, by the way, you notice it's a private conversation. He's not like trying to shame her or humiliate her in front of her peers or in front of someone else. It's a private conversation. He's not trying to wound her by kind of picking at this painful thing in her life. He's trying to heal her. And what he's trying to get her to see is you need to acknowledge the painful truth that you are seeking to be satisfied. You're seeking validation. You're seeking your sense of self-worth in relationships with men. And he's, I mean, he doesn't go this far, but he's like, men are losers. They're, if, if that's your source of satisfaction, and ladies, I'll tell you the same still today. If, if seeking a relationship, like even a healthy long-term marriage, if you're like, that's where it's at. That's not where it's at. And we need to acknowledge, like this woman needed to acknowledge, where am I trying to find satisfaction? Because our healing from dissatisfaction begins with naming those things. And I mean being honest, being candid, being specific, and saying, God, I so often turn to this thing, whether it's a coping mechanism or a specific thing or a specific relationship, or calling someone up and being like, hey, you want to get together? And then you just both feel worse afterward. And it's very possible that our dissatisfaction is because we're looking to the things of this world to satisfy us in ways that only God can satisfy. And the sooner we see that and call it out and turn from those things to a God who satisfies, the quicker we get joy. Okay? So recognize those things. Then secondly, center your life on the only God who gave up satisfaction to give you satisfaction. And this is in the text. Let me show it to you. This is awesome, okay? So part of this, 
when the woman deflects to worship, Jesus is like, okay, we can talk about worship. And he starts talking to her about how the Father is seeking those who will worship in spirit and in truth. And he's like, you know what? In a sense, you're right. You want to you debate about like this mountain or the mountain down there in Jerusalem. And Jesus says, let me tell you some good news. There's a day coming. There's an hour coming and is now here. When you'll neither worship on that mountain nor on that mountain. And what's he talking about? Because he's saying there's coming a day when anyone any ethnicity, any gender, any religious background or no religious background at all can come to the Father wherever they are through him, through Jesus. So he's inviting this woman to find satisfaction in becoming one of these true worshipers who comes to the Father through the Son. And he's basically saying, stop worshiping, stop serving, stop building your identity on things that can't satisfy you. Start worshiping, start serving, start building your identity on one who loves you, the Father, okay? Now here's something incredible about what Jesus is saying. When he says the hour is coming and is now here, when you'll neither worship there nor there, because I'm going to open up access to the Father where you can pray anywhere. You can confess your own sins. You're not coming through a mediator or an earthly priest or a pastor or a counselor or a husband. You can just go to Jesus, to the Father. Okay? Now, what's interesting is he says the hour. And over and over again in this Gospel of John, he refers to the hour, the hour, my hour, his hour, the hour. And every time John is talking about the hour of Jesus' crucifixion. Okay, and you can go back and look this up in the Gospel of John. Over and over again, he says, the hour is coming when? And if you understand, well, when did that actually happen? Well, it's when Jesus died on the cross for our sins to open up a path of forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration. Okay, now here's what's fascinating to me about this. All four Gospels record the crucifixion in very similar detail. Only the Gospel of John tells us that as Jesus is hanging there on the cross, nailed in place, gasping for breath, The father has turned his face away because Jesus has taken our sin on him. John's the only one that tells us in the middle of that experience, Jesus says, I thirst. He's the only one that tells us that. I thirst. So here, Jesus is forecasting. There's coming an hour where I will thirst. It's like, well, how how can you come to her and say, I can give you living water that will never run out. You will never thirst again. And yet there you hang thirsty. And the simple answer is on the cross, we're so used to talking about this and it's important. On the cross, Jesus is bearing our sin, right? And the wrath of God, the punishment of God comes down because Jesus is saying, don't don't punish my children, punish me so that I can forgive my children. But, but Jesus is also hanging there on the cross and he's taking every ounce of your dissatisfaction in mine. And the reason he's saying, I thirst, is because dissatisfaction is being poured out on him on the cross. And we know that Jesus is the one who can quench our thirst because he's the one who took our thirst in the first place. He says, I'm thirsty so that you will never thirst again. That's what he's saying on the cross. 
Okay, so that's why I say center your life on the God who gave up satisfaction in order to give you satisfaction. And just look at all the dissatisfactions of your, in your life and just kind of visualize them draining away from you into Jesus, hanging on the cross saying, give me your dissatisfaction, give me your discontentment, release your emptiness. That, that parched thing is not just on your lips, it's on your soul, it's on your heart, it's in your affections. And he's like, let me be parched for you so that you will be satisfied forever. And that's where he turns with this last bit of counsel. Again, inviting her to come to him, not go off to find religion or a formula or tips and tricks. So the last thing he says here is internalize then the life-giving, soul-satisfying gift of Jesus. So back up to verse 13 now and see this invitation. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And he compares the kind of satisfaction that is met in him, that is found in him personally to water. And friends, if you're parched, I don't know if you've been on a hike in the mountains and you run out of water, or you forgot to take some with you, or you've had some experience where you were parched, right? And, and how does water satisfy you when you are parched? You know, do you just go stand on the seashore and you're like, ah, finally, water. There's so much of it. Let me just look at it. Let me just stand in the presence of water. And it's just grand, you know. Um, I, I feel so satisfied now. Or do you take like, you, you dip your fingers in it and just splash a little bit on your face and you're like, now I'm satisfied. No, like, I mean, you know, you're you are chugging water and hopefully at a pace where you don't have another medical condition because you're drinking it too fast. But you know the way that water satisfies you is you drink it, lots of it. The water has to go in to satisfy you. And Jesus' words of life and grace have to go in in order to satisfy your soul. And in just a few moments, we'll take communion. But did you ever think about this? Like on that night when Jesus betrayed and he's taking the Passover meal and he takes the bread and he says, this is my body broken for you. He takes the cup. This is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. And then they're, they're eating that bread and drinking that cup. Why? Because Jesus is showing them this powerful illustration that the way my grace comes to you, the way my forgiveness comes to you, the way the restoration and the healing and the hope come to you is you've got to get it in you and let it go down and change you, okay? And that's what he's saying here. And I want to make this practical and then I'm done, okay? How does the love and grace of Jesus satisfy you? Well, there are two ways that we need satisfaction, or two ways, two ways, to put it differently, two ways that we thirst. One is we thirst for something we desperately need, like for biological life, okay? If I were to ask everyone in this room right now to hold your breath, and we do this when we're driving through tunnels in the mountains, if everyone held your breath, okay, you would very soon, and different ones of you would last a little bit longer than other ones of you, but you would very quickly experience a biological need to take the next breath, okay? And if you went on a hunger strike, or a, a water strike, very soon you would experience a biological need. I thirst for something I need for life. A second kind of thirst is for something that we crave, for something like tasty. And I think what's fascinating is that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is both 
and I don't mean any disrespect by saying this, but the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is both delicious and nutritious, okay? It, it is nutritious in the sense it is something that you need to take into you to experience life, like life forever and a truly deeply satisfying life. But it's not like cardboard crackers that'll like get you through. See, you can live and there's a glass of water, but it's like Jesus has set a feast for you. And he's like, I'm not barely getting you by nutritionally. Here's something aesthetically pleasing. And so the invitation of Jesus, when he's like, drink this water and let it become in you a well of water springing up to an eternal life, is it's an invitation, friends, to feast on God's kindness, to feast on God's patience, to feast on God's justice, to feast on God's mercy, to feast on his compassion. And what I encourage us to do this week is just take one of those attributes or one of those dimensions of grace and really work it in. And what I encourage you to do to be really practical is take something from your past or something from your present that you naturally look to and say, I'm dissatisfied about this and here's how I seek satisfaction. And now compare it and contrast it to like the the love of Jesus. And if this woman did this, it would sound something like this. She would think, wow, Jesus, like thank you for seeking me out and talking to me even though I'm a Samaritan and even though I'm a woman and even though I'm an extremely broken woman who is the pariah of my own culture. My own culture won't even talk to me. And yet here you are with the love unlike I've known from any other man in my life. Thank you for refusing to play by the rules of a broken culture that sets me aside and has made nothing of me. Thank you for never using me with your love, never manipulating me with, my love, with your love, never breaking me or wounding me or shaming me with your love. Thank you for never giving up on me with your love. Thank you that your love forgives and restores my soul. It forgives and restores my future. So she could have just taken the love that she experienced in Jesus and compared it to every other love she's ever gotten from a man and been like, that that's what it feels like to drink from something that springs up in me and overflows with delight instead of dissatisfaction. And that's the invitation, friends, to all of us. Jesus satisfies all who drink deeply of his grace.